This is literally everything, 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 everything. If you're like me, you have a pile of books older than your grandma's mom and taller than the Empire State Building just begging to be read. To top it off, you probably add several books to said pile every week, yet somehow find yourself in a reading slump with nothing to read. Uh Uh-huh, I see you. In an attempt to tackle my never-ending pile of books, I decided to start a podcast with hopes of making some sort of dent in said pile, and maybe help inspire your next read. I'm Odell. Welcome to Just Read It Already. Hey, my friends. Happy Halloween week. This is my final creepy season episode, and I gotta say, while I love a good horror, thriller, mystery novel, I'm definitely ready to switch things up because I'm starting to get a little burned out. This week, I'll share my thoughts on Riley Sager's Lock Every Door, Stephen Graham Jones' My Heart is a Chainsaw, Chuck Tingle's Camp Damascus, Danielle Valentine's Delicate Condition, and William Peter Blatty's classic, The Exorcist. But before we jump into the reviews, let's look at some of this week's new releases. First on my list is The Space Between Here and Now by Sarah Sook. This gripping, atmospheric young adult novel follows a teen with a mysterious condition that transports her to the past when she smells certain scents linked to specific memories. Then we have Sinner's Isle by Angela Montoya. The fiery tale of a powerful witch who will do anything to escape the remote island she's being held captive on, including blackmail an infamous, charming pirate who washes up on shore. Then we have People to Follow by Olivia Worley. Ten teen influencers come to a remote island to star in a reality show, but when one of them winds up dead, they realize that this time the price of being cancelled could be their lives. Then we have The Rosewood Hunt by Mackenzie Reed. Irresistible intrigue, captivating suspense, a swoony friends-to-rivals-to-lovers romance, and heartbreaking betrayal drive this thrilling debut novel that is perfect for fans of The Inheritance Games and Knives Out. Next is The Totally True Story of Gracie Byrne by Shannon Takoka. I think T-A-K-A-O-K-A. Gracie feels like a minor character in her own life story, until a mysterious journal turns her fictional stories into reality. Next is Dirty 30 by Janet Ivanovich. This is book number 30 in the Stephanie Plum series. Then we have The Graham Effect by L. Kennedy. Gigi Graham has exactly three goals. Qualify for the women's national hockey team, win Olympic gold, and step out of her famous father's shadow. Next is Blood Sisters by Vanessa Lilly. A visceral and compelling mystery about a Cherokee archaeologist for the Bureau of Indian Affairs who is summoned to rural Oklahoma to investigate the disappearance of two women, one of them her sister. Then we have What the River Knows by Isabel Abanez. The mummy meets death on the Nile in this lush, immersive historical fantasy set in Egypt and filled with adventure, a rivals-to-lover romance, and a dangerous race. Next is The Paleontologist by Luke Dumas. A haunted paleontologist returns to the museum where his sister was abducted years earlier and is faced with a terrifying and murderous spirit. Definitely want to read that one. Next is The Sun Sets in Singapore by Kahind Fadip. I think F-A-D-I-P-E. 
Basking in Singapore's nonstop sunshine, low tax rate, and luxury goods market, Dara, Amaka, and Lillian are living the glamorous expat dream until their carefully constructed lives are upended by a handsome and mysterious new arrival. And last on my list is Nestlings by Nat Cassidy. Harnesses the creeping paranoia of Rosemary's Baby and the urban horror of Salem's Lot, set in an exclusive New York City residential building. That's another one I want to check out. I've seen nothing but good things about that all over Instagram. All right, that's all I have on my list. And I didn't add any new books to my TBR this week. Surprise, surprise. So we're going to jump right in with the reviews. And we'll kick things off with Riley Sager's Lock Every Door. This book was first published by Dutton on July 2nd, 2019, and was a nominee for Best Mystery and Thriller in the Goodreads Choice Awards that same year. The synopsis reads, No visitors, no night spent away from the apartment, no disturbing the other residents, all of whom are rich or famous or both. These are the only rules for Jules Larson's new job as an apartment sitter at the Bartholomew, one of Manhattan's most high-profile and mysterious buildings. Recently heartbroken and just plain broke, Jules is taken in by the splendor of her surroundings and accepts the terms, ready to leave her past life behind. As she gets to know the residents and staff of the Bartholomew, Jules finds herself drawn to fellow apartment setter Ingrid, who, comfortingly, disturbingly, reminds her of the sister she lost eight years ago. When Ingrid confides that the Bartholomew is not what it seems and the dark history hidden beneath its gleaming facade is starting to frighten her, Jules brushes it off as a harmless ghost story until the next day when Ingrid disappears. Searching for the truth about Ingrid's disappearance, Jules digs deeper into the Bartholomew's dark past and into the secrets kept within its walls. Her discovery that Ingrid is not the first apartment sitter to go missing at the Bartholomew pits Jules against the clock as she races to unmask a killer, expose the building's hidden past, and escape the Bartholomew before her temporary status becomes permanent. This is the fourth Riley Sager book that I've read, and so far I've read and enjoyed The Only One Left, The Final Girls, and Home Before Dark, with the latter being my favorite. I'd heard that this one is his best, and while I don't feel the same, I'm happy to report that this one didn't disappoint. This book focuses on Jules Larson, a young woman desperately needing a fresh start. Jules is basically an orphan, her parents are dead, her only sibling, a sister, went missing several years before. Since her parents were only children, she has no aunts, uncles, or cousins. She was recently laid off from work and is desperate for a job. Her friend Chloe has been gracious enough to let her crash with her, but Jules knows this isn't a long-term solution. When she sees an ad for a paid house-sitting job online, she immediately makes the call. She expects to make a little cash to help her get by until she can find full-time work. When she learns that the apartment she's to watch is at the famed Bartholomew, she desperately wants a job. Her favorite book was set at the Bartholomew, and she's dreamed of living here, or at least visiting, since she was a little girl. Much to her surprise, she is offered the job. It's a three-month contract, and she'll receive $1,000 in cash every week, meaning she can make up to $12,000 when all is said and done, so of course she says yes. Chloe is immediately skeptical. She doesn't trust the setup. Getting paid cash means it's likely illegal and suggests the owners could be hiding something. Also, the rules are suspicious. Jules has to stay there every night, no exceptions, and isn't allowed visitors, allegedly to respect the privacy of the wealthy who live at the Bartholomew. Jules ignores Chloe's fears and immediately moves in, and it's not long before the creepies begin to happen. One thing that I love is when the setting of the book is basically another character, and that is exactly the case here. 
The author paints a vivid picture of the Bartholomew, a prestigious apartment building in Manhattan that holds a dark secret, leaving readers eager to uncover its mysteries. The Bartholomew has a checkered past, including disappearances, suicides, and murders, and it's not long before Jules begins to suspect that they could still be happening. The descriptive writing style brings the setting to life, allowing readers to fully immerse themselves in the atmosphere of the Bartholomew. The building's dark past and hidden secrets are vividly portrayed, creating a sense of unease. As our protagonist, Jules is a relatable and likable character. The fact that she's basically alone and trying to survive makes her immediately sympathetic. Her livelihood is at stake, and we want her to be okay. We know she should leave the Bartholomew, but we also understand why she doesn't. She desperately needs money. Her connection to Ingrid, a fellow apartment sitter who disappears, adds an additional layer of intrigue to the story. The bond between the two women is palpable, and readers will find themselves rooting for Jules as she races against time to uncover the truth of what happened to Ingrid and save herself from the same fate. The pacing is also perfect. Sager keeps readers hooked from start to finish, steadily building the suspense to a heart-pounding climax, culminating in a satisfying and shocking conclusion. And while I wasn't surprised by who was actually behind what was going on, the why behind it was definitely intriguing. I mentioned earlier that Home Before Dark is my favorite book of Sager's, but this one is definitely up there. If you enjoy gripping psychological thrillers that keep you guessing until the very end, Lock Every Door is a must-read that will not disappoint. I rated it 4 stars and gave it a 3 on the scary meter. It wasn't super scary, but it definitely has its tense moments. And we'll continue the reviews with My Heart is a Chainsaw by Stephen Graham Jones. This book was first published by Gallery on August 31st, 2021, and was a Goodreads Choice nominee for Best Horror that same year. The synopsis reads, Jade Daniels is an angry, half-Indian outcast with an abusive father, an absent mother, and an entire town that wants nothing to do with her. She lives in her own world, a world in which protection comes from an unusual source, horror movies, especially the ones where a masked killer seeks revenge on a world that wronged them. And Jade narrates the quirky history of Proofrock as if it was one of those movies. But when blood actually starts to spill into the waters of Indian Lake, she pulls us into her dizzying encyclopedic mind of blood and masked murderers and predicts exactly how the plot will unfold. Yet, even as Jade drags us into her dark fever dream, a surprising and intimate portrait emerges. A portrait of the scared and traumatized little girl beneath a Jason Voorhees mask. Angry, yes, but also a girl who easily cries, fiercely loves, and desperately wants a home. A girl whose feelings are too big for her body. I've had this book on my TBR forever, but I've never gotten around to it for whatever reason. When I decided to do nothing but mysteries, thrillers, and horror books this entire month, I put this at the top of the list. I think one of the things that kept me from diving in is that several reviews stated that it was really slow to start and that it was really difficult to follow. I can confirm that it definitely starts slow, and at times I was left wondering what the fuck was going on. In the end, I liked it, but I had way too many questions and what the fuck moments to say that I truly loved it. In this book, readers are introduced to Jay Daniels, who I will admit is a truly intriguing and complex protagonist. Jade lives in Proofrock, a small town somewhere in Idaho where nothing exciting ever happens. It sounds like the small Idaho town that I grew up in. 
Jade has lived a bit of a troubled life. She's a troubled high school senior who lives with her father, and it's clear early on that they don't have a great relationship for whatever reason. Jade is pretty much an outcast in Proof Rock and sees the world through the lens of a horror movie. One might say she's obsessed with them, so much so that she feels like what her town needs is a slasher to hit the town and stir things up. Across the lake from Proof Rock are a bunch of mansions that are being built. Rich people are encroaching on the quiet little town, building these huge lake houses across the way. When new girl Letha Mondragon shows up at school, Jade sees her as the perfect final girl. And when Letha finds a body, Jade is convinced that a slasher has surfaced, and it's up to her to ensure that Letha is up to speed on how to be the perfect final girl. One of the standout aspects of this novel is the way it pays homage to the horror genre. It is clear that the author has an extensive knowledge of horror films, and fans of the genre will delight in recognizing those nods throughout the story. The way in which Jade predicts and comments on the unfolding plot is a clever and effective narrative device, and her Horror 101 essays peppered throughout the book add depth to the story. Jade is definitely the type of narrator that I love. She's broken, she's been through a lot of shit, and horror movies are definitely a coping mechanism for her. We start the story wanting to give Jade something to chill her out a bit and focus, but as the story progresses, we learn that Jade's scattered and obsessive way of speaking and thinking are merely coping mechanisms. Eventually, her vulnerabilities are revealed, providing readers with a portrait of a traumatized little girl hiding beneath a slasher mask. Jade is a character who experiences a range of emotions, from love to fear, and who yearns for a sense of belonging. Through Jade, Jones explores themes of isolation, trauma, and the search for a place to call home, and not only a home, but a safe home at that. This is another book where the setting is also an important character. Throughout the narrative, the small town of Proofrock takes on a life of its own. As Jade delves into the history of the town, readers are exposed to its dark secrets and the heavy weight of its past. The atmosphere is palpable with the looming presence of masked murderers, local urban legends, and other dangerous things spilling blood across the waters of Indian Lake. Now that said, I did have a few issues with the book. First of all, I found the stream of consciousness narrative style to be challenging to follow at times. While it allows readers to dive deeply into Jane's mind and experience her unique first-hand perspective, there were moments when it became difficult to follow along. I also felt a little whiplash toward the end when things really took off and the bodies began to pile up. It seems we're headed in one direction, and it seems obvious who the killer is, but then all of a sudden, there's something else entirely responsible for all of the deaths. This something else was mentioned earlier on in the book, but never really took off until all of a sudden toward the end it resurfaced out of left field. It left me feeling a little discombobulated, and I can't say a whole lot more without giving it away, so I'll just leave it at that. Overall, I liked the book. It just left me a little too confused to say that I loved it. I can definitely see why reviews are split. Now that said, if you are a tried and true horror fan, I would definitely recommend checking this one out. Jade is definitely an interesting character that I'd love to spend a little more time with, and from what I understand, the sequel, Don't Fear the Reaper, is supposed to be better than this book, and from what I understand, it's a little more focused. I'll definitely be checking it out. In the end, I rated this one three stars and gave it a three and a half on the scary meter, only because it didn't really get that scary or tense until I was about three quarters of the way in. We're going to take a quick break. Be right back. 
Now we'll take a look at Camp Damascus by Chuck Tingle. This book was first published by Tor Nightfire on July 18, 2023. The synopsis reads, Welcome to Neverton, Montana, home to a God-fearing community with a heart of gold. Nestled high up in the mountains is Camp Damascus, the self-proclaimed most effective gay conversion camp in the country. Here, a life free from sin awaits, but the secret behind that success is anything but holy. This was another case of me going into a book thinking it was going to be about one thing and then it ended up taking a completely different approach, and I loved it. The story begins with our main character, Rose, spending time at a local swimming hole with her friends. While there, Rose notices a woman with dark, straggly hair staring at her from the trees. The woman appears to be wearing a red shirt and khakis, much like a camp counselor's uniform. The woman also appears to be wearing some sort of collar, but before Rose can get a good look at her, the woman is gone. Then Rose begins to experience really weird things like coughing up a swarm of flies, nightmares of screaming kids in some sort of chamber, and the creepy woman in the camp counselor outfit continues to pop up. As Rose digs into what is going on, she eventually finds a tie between her visions and Camp Damascus, but Camp Damascus is for gay people, and Rose isn't gay. Or is she? Did her parents send her to Camp Damascus, and is what she's experiencing related to that? Or is it something else entirely? I won't say much more about this one, because the less you know going into it, the better. I went into this thinking I was going to read about a bunch of teens trapped at a gay conversion camp fighting to get out, but what I got was completely different. Like I said earlier, I loved it. Tingle's descriptive writing style immediately transports us to the small town of Neverton, Montana, a nice little God-fearing town that reminded me a lot of the small town in Idaho that I grew up in. The only difference was everyone in my hometown, with the exception of a small few, were Mormon. In Neverton, almost everyone is a member of Kingdom of the Pines, a Jesus-loving church that is also behind Camp Damascus, the self-proclaimed most successful gay conversion camp in the country. Tingle paints a picture of a community that appears idyllic on the surface, but is hiding dark secrets behind closed doors. As we delve deeper into the story, we discover the sinister truth behind Camp Damascus, a gay conversion camp that claims to offer salvation, but is steeped in malevolence. Yeah, I know, when is a gay conversion camp ever a good idea? The answer is, it's not, and Tingle does a great job of shedding light on the horrors of conversion therapy by adding a supernatural twist. Much like many of the far-right Christians today, the Kingdom of the Pines members feel like homosexuality is the worst kind of sin, and they need to teach people how to, and I quote, love right. What Tingle manages to do with this book is show not only how ridiculous and dangerous this way of thinking is, but also shows who the real monsters are in all of this. The protagonist, Rose, is a relatable and well-developed character. Tingle skillfully captures her confusion and vulnerability as she navigates the strange occurrences happening to her. From the beginning, when she spots the mysterious woman in the woods, Rose's journey becomes an intriguing puzzle that the reader eagerly pieces together. As her nightmares and strange encounters intensify, we're on the edge of our seats, eager to uncover the truth with Rose. Despite the eerie atmosphere, Tingle infuses a narrative with themes of self-acceptance and the power of unconditional love, challenging the far-right, quote, Christian notions about sexuality and identity. 
Through his characters, he demonstrates the importance of embracing and accepting people for who they are. I found it super easy to fall into the story, and I read it in a single sitting. The pacing is perfect and kept me engaged and hungry for more. The author's attention to detail is commendable, and he crafts a fully realized world within the confines of Neverton. From the picturesque landscapes to the corrupt underbelly, every aspect of the fictional town feels authentic and tangible. On top of that, the creepy vibe is there from the very first page. The presence of these creepy beings dressed in what appear to be camp counselor uniforms is very unsettling. It definitely gave me an It Follows vibe, and if you've not seen that movie, highly recommend it. If you are a horror lover and you've not yet read this book, you definitely need to check it out. It's a quick read, and Tingle does a great job of keeping everything moving. It has everything you could want, characters you root for, a captivating story, horror, and a whole lot of heart. I rated this one 4.5 stars and gave it a 4 on the scary meter. And now I'll share my thoughts on Delicate Condition by Danielle Valentine. This book was first published by Sourcebooks Landmark on August 1st, 2023. This book is also what the current season of American Horror Story is based on. The synopsis reads, Anna Alcott is desperate to be pregnant, but as she tries to balance her increasingly public life with a grueling IVF journey, she starts to suspect that someone is going to great lengths to make sure her pregnancy never happens. Crucial medicines are lost, appointments get swapped without her knowledge, And even when she finally manages to get pregnant, not even her husband is willing to believe that someone's playing a twisted game with her. When the increasingly cryptic threats drive her out of her Brooklyn brownstone and into hiding in the cold, gray ghost town that is the Hamptons in the depth of winter, Anna is almost at the end of her rope. Then her doctor tells her she's had a miscarriage, except Anna's convinced she's still pregnant, despite everything the gray-faced men around her claim. Could it be that her mind is playing tricks on her? or is something more sinister at play? As her symptoms become ever more horrifying and the sense of danger ever more present, Anna can't help but wonder what exactly she's carrying inside of her, and why no one will listen when she says something is horribly, painfully wrong. I did my best to choose only one book per author for this month. Otherwise, I probably would have included three more Riley Sagers and a few more by Darcy Coates in the mix. I went back and forth on including this one since I'd already read How to Solve Your Murder by this author, and finally decided I'd give this a go since it's the basis for this year's American Horror Story, and I wanted to watch it, but wanted to read the book first. So, here we are. This book focuses on Anna Alcott, a woman in her late 30s who's desperately been trying to get pregnant and has resorted to IVF. Anna is an actress, and thanks to her role in an indie flick, she is a frontrunner for an Oscar and heavily in the public eye. As Anna gets deeper into her IVF journey, she feels like something weird is going on. Calendar appointments keep mysteriously changing on her calendar, and she seems to be being followed. When Anna awakens to find a woman in her bedroom, she and her husband decide to pack up and go stay in the Hamptons at a friend's house for a few months. It's just them and their bodyguard, far from the public eye. The stress of it all causes Anna to suffer a miscarriage. She and her husband are devastated, but then a few days later, Anna feels movement in her belly and experiences morning sickness. She's convinced that she's still pregnant, even though everyone around her tells her there's no way she could be. She also feels as though she's still being followed, but no one will listen to her. Is she losing her mind over the grief of the miscarriage, or is she actually pregnant? And more importantly, is there really someone after her and her unborn baby? 
And while I ended up liking the book, I didn't totally love it, and I feel like I'm in the minority here. And the thing is, I can't exactly pinpoint why I wasn't more into this one, because everyone else seems to love it. As far as characters go, I did like Anna, and I felt that all of the characters in the story were unique in personality, and each one served a purpose. I never felt confused as to who was who, who I trusted, who I didn't. The book is told from the third-person perspective and focuses on Anna. This worked, but I feel like maybe I would have been a little more invested in the story had we gotten a first-person present perspective from Anna. I feel like that would have amped up the intensity and the urgency. It would have provided a more intimate connection with Anna. One of the things that really worked for the book is its atmospheric setting. The author brings the cold, gray ghost town of the Hamptons in winter to life. It infuses the narrative with an eerie and chilling backdrop. The desolation of the setting compounds the growing sense of danger that Anna faces and adds an extra layer of suspense to the story. One of the author's strengths is her ability to build tension and create suspense. The plot twists and turns, and it kept me guessing as I read. As Anna's state of mind grows fragile and the weird things become more frequent, we desperately want to know what's happening. Very few people believe Anna's claims that someone is out to get her, and we desperately want to know if these things are real or not, and if so, who's behind it and why. Each revelation uncovers a new layer of the mystery and leaves readers perplexed and guessing until the very end. The book offers an intriguing exploration of the depths of the human mind. Anna's relentless conviction that she's still pregnant and her insistence that something or someone is after her while no one believes her is maddening. The fragility of the character's psychological state adds depth and complexity to the narrative and makes the story feel all the more haunting. While the book is undeniably gripping, there are moments where the pacing felt slightly uneven. I'm also on the fence over how I feel about the revelation of what was really going on and how the ending played out. For whatever reason, I can't make it make sense in my head, even when I suspend disbelief. Something just felt off about it, but of course, I can't get into more detail lest I spoil it for you. That said, the overall impact of the story is still pretty powerful, and many readers are likely to be less bothered by these things than I was. In fact, a lot of people have really loved this one. Overall, I thought it was a fun and slightly unsettling novel that many fans of psychological thrillers will love. For me, it was a decent read, I just, again, didn't love it. I gave it three stars and a two and a half on my scary meter. I didn't find it overly scary, though there were a few creepy scenes. And we will close out with the horror classic, The Exorcist, by William Peter Blatty. This book was first published before my time on June 1st, 1971 by Harper and Rowe. The synopsis reads, The terror begins unobtrusively. Noises in the attic, in the child's room an odd smell, the displacement of furniture, an icy chill. At first, easy explanations are offered. Then, frightening changes begin to appear in 11-year-old Reagan. Medical tests fail to shed any light on her symptoms, but it is as if a different personality has invaded her body. Father Damien Karras, a Jesuit priest, is called in. Is it possible that a demonic presence has possessed the child? Exorcism seems to be the only answer. First published in 1971, The Exorcist became a literary phenomenon and inspired one of the most shocking films ever made. In the world of horror, few stories have left as much of a mark as The Exorcist. 
As the synopsis mentions, the book was first published in 1971 and quickly became a bestseller. And two years later, it dominated the box office when the movie version was released in 1973. And while many may be familiar with the iconic film adaptation, I'm here to tell you that the book is even better. I first saw the movie when I was something like 10 years old, maybe, and it terrified me. After watching it, I was convinced that my eight-year-old sister was going to be possessed, so I slept on the floor next to her bed so I could watch for signs of possession and try to save her before it was too late. No idea what the hell I thought I was going to do if that happened, but it was important to me to make sure that all was well in the house. Maybe it was a byproduct of being the oldest child and feeling like I had to protect my younger siblings, I don't know. Now, if you've not seen the movie, what rock have you been living under, first of all? I watch it every October, and it still manages to unnerve me no matter how many times I've seen it. I first read the book when I was in high school, so many years ago. I'd forgotten how good the book is, though. The movie is a pretty faithful adaptation, and I credit the fact that Blatty, the author of the book, also wrote the screenplay for the movie, so there were no deviations. Now, in case you have no idea what the book or movie is about, it tells the story of Reagan McNeil, an innocent 11-year-old girl who becomes possessed by an entity who claims to be the devil himself. As Reagan's behavior grows increasingly erratic and disturbing, her mother, Chris, seeks help from the medical community, only to find that no amount of science or medicine can explain what is happening to her daughter. Is it schizophrenia? Is Reagan acting out after her parents' divorce? It's only when Father Damien Karras, a Jesuit priest, enters the picture that the true nature of the evil is revealed, and now it's up to Father Karras to convince the church that Reagan is possessed and needs an exorcism. The movie follows the book very closely, but as is the case with most adaptations, we get a lot more information in the book. For example, the movie only touches on the desecrations that keep happening at a nearby Catholic church, but the book goes into a lot more detail and makes it more clear that these are likely tied to Reagan's possession. We also get more insight into the fragility of faith and the profound struggles faced by Father Karras as he grapples with his own doubts about the Catholic church. We also get a deeper look into the death of Burke Dennings. Spoiler alert if you've not seen the movie or read the book. Burke Dennings is directing a movie that Chris, Reagan's mother, is starring in. Burke is a bit crass, loves his alcohol. One evening while Chris is out, her assistant Sharon has run an errand and leaves Burke in charge of watching Reagan. Later that night, Burke is found at the bottom of the stairs outside of the McNeil's home. He appears to have fallen and broken his neck, but the police are convinced that his injuries show that he didn't simply fall down the steps. The extent of the injuries indicates that he fell from a greater height before tumbling down the stairs, which were just below Reagan's window. In the book, we get more insight into the police's investigation into Burke's death. Now, while all of these additions are great, the creepiest parts of the book center around Reagan's behavior when she's possessed. We get the spinning head that we see in the movie, we get the vomit, we get the crucifix scene, if you know, you know. We get the crab walk and even a few other scenes that weren't in the movie, like Reagan spinning on her toes like a top, and then the way she chases Sharon around while in her crab walk position, licking at Sharon's legs. And seeing some of this play out in the movie was scary, but reading it in even more detail is truly unsettling. The vivid descriptions of the supernatural occurrences are not for the faint of heart, but it is precisely this unabashed commitment to delivering pure terror that sets The Exorcist apart from other horror novels. I am so happy I read this book again. If you are a fan of the movie but you've not yet read the book, what are you waiting for? 
you need to get on that ASAP. This is hands down a five-star read. I also gave it my only five this season on the scary meter because it freaks me the fuck out. That's all I have for you this week. Thanks for joining me for my month of scary book fun. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram. The handle there is at justreaditalreadypod. You can also learn more about all the books I mentioned today by checking out the website at justreaditalready.com. Be sure to join me next week when I share my thoughts on Finding My Elf by David Valdez, Happiness Falls by Angie Kim, One Night in Heartswood by Emma Denny, and Amazing Grace Adams by Fran Littlewood. Have an amazing week. Thank you.